Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, I really enjoyed the sermon from Reverend Sherrick. Um, Mike? It says it's green. So, yeah, it, it's nice to have a variety of people in the, uh, the body of Christ because I could not do what he did, but when I read that, or if I was reading it, you know, so judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you, you measure, it will be measured to you. Uh, I've had this discussion with John Cryer. They're out on vacation. I actually got a text from him, and I told him I thought I would use the King James Version because that was my Bible for 20 years, 30, I, 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 a long time. So that was really when a lot of my neurons got set for the Scripture, and I memorized a lot of stuff. Uh, so uh, I had talked about that, but I hadn't done anything. And John was going to do something about it. I thought, man, I better go try this out and make sure it works. So, it uh, but today uh, I was looking on my bookshelf and I found my communion Bible, or confirmation Bible. Got it in September 1967. It's signed by uh, Reverend Scarden and Bishop Gray Temple of the Episcopal Church in South Carolina. So I got that because it was clean. Because so I, I, what I was also doing was trying to get a Bible that was clean and just read it. Because uh, most of what I do is, you know, I look at that much and I blow an hour. So uh, anyhow, I, I found it. I'm going to start tomorrow. Uh, I just finished Revelation and I'm going back to Isaiah and I'm just going to do Isaiah to Revelation again. And just read. And, and, but then, you know, it... The, this whole issue, well, what's the, John is very interested in the right translation. I, and people ask me that about English, and I, I have certain opinions, but I don't care because I can always look at what the Greek says. So it's just different. It's like people want to know about a bicycle. All I know about is the ones a pros ride in Europe that cost a lot of money. <laughs> so, uh, but anyhow, this verse, you know, it says, you know, uh, it's just different. So, and it brings up an important issue that we deal with, but especially the verse 2. Judge not that you be not judged. Well, that's kind of how the Greek says it. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the, it doesn't say that in the Greek. It says with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. It uses that word three times, the judge thing, in different forms. And with the me measure you use, it will be measured to you. But it really says in the Greek, with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And it's even different because we can't even do it in English. Because they just have three words. Like, uh, you know, for, you know, with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. Well, that's just three words in Greek. But, you know, like, you judge is one word in Greek. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's... it's for the judge one is krimati krithesis, just three words. 
all in the same order. Uh, and the same with measure. It's metro, metrete, metrethesetai. Just, that's it. And those three say all that stuff. And even a little more, actually. But uh, it's just hard to, to get everything in the translation. So that brings up the issue. Does it really, how important is that? It is important. Uh, but is this ESV not the word of God? And I, King James may follow that. I didn't look it up this morning. But, or do we have to know the Greek? So it's, it's an important issue. There are a lot of translations. We have ancient versions. And a part of it is, it is a word, the translation is the word of God. Because it's, you know, Greek, you know, you have to know it in your own language. So it's expressed in our language. And then the Holy Spirit works with us. And when we get into the canon, we'll see about the testimony of the Holy Spirit. But, you know, that's an important issue. So how hard do you push that? You know, I'm going to go start reading the King James. And that's where I learned about textual criticism, because the King James isn't always right, because it's based on later Greek manuscripts, the Byzantine text type. Uh, the, they call it the received text. Uh, so it, it's a little different in places. Uh, and, you know, scholars have determined that the oldest texts that read a little differently. I gave you that example from 1 John chapter 3 uh, last week. So, but either way, it's still the word of God. And uh, it's, you know, we don't get contradictions or things that are misleading. In good translations. Uh, the really expanded ones, I don't think too much of because they're more like a homily on the scripture as opposed to the word of God. So I thought I'd start with that. Uh, but uh, John, uh, he, he was asking me about that and I felt really guilty about it. So, but I found the book, uh, King James Version. The only one I could remember was this companion Bible that I had that was all full of notes and but I just want something clean to read. There's two different ways to study the word. One is you look at a little bit or you just. So for me right now, time is the right time is just to read and read and see the whole passage and of the, the scriptures, how they pass. All right. So I wanted to briefly go over what we went over because that was a lot last week. And then we'll move on to. So it's sort of like what it isn't. Although, as we know what it, it, the canon isn't, we've been over what it is. So, uh, and then we'll go what it is. So, um, you know, so the canon refers to that list of books that are considered authoritative. Oh, and you know, related to that, uh, it's almost like there's an arch enemy of the, in academe, a guy named... Uh, Bart Ehrman, University of North Carolina. Shea brought up uh, the, the influence that guy had on his son. And, and I have a book that deals with some of what uh, Ehrman says. It's called The Heresy of Orthodoxy. That, that if you hold, it's the idea is if you hold to orthodoxy, you're a heretic because you're not diverse. <laughs> Although this... Uh, you know, how contemporary culture's fascination with diversity has reshaped our understanding of early Christianity. So he's turning it back around. So this is the book. But Ehrman did a lot of work in textual criticism. 
And, and he would sort of set up this thing as we don't have the Bible. We don't have the Word of God. In fact, if it was really the Word of God, we'd have it. But since we don't have it, it never existed. It's just stuff men made up. He, he sort of sets up this straw man that, well, there are no perfect copies of the Bible, so we don't have the Word of God. He's taken this strong view and then rejected it all. So, uh, and he's had a huge influence along with some other people. And I'd mentioned that earlier with Bauer's ideas. But uh, anyhow, uh, you know, it, it was this Bart Ehrman. But this book's by Kostenberger and Kruger. And Kruger did a lot of work on the canon, too. Uh, he's at the Reform Seminary in Charlotte. So he's a real smart guy. All right. So, but, but again, you know, uh, Ehrman set up this definition, then he knocks it down. So that's not so good. Oh, and another thing, uh, actually, uh, Shay and I talked about, you know, Ehrman says, well, you know, I started out as a conservative and I saw the light. And now let me tell you what the real truth is. But when the PhD scientist becomes a Christian, it doesn't mean anything, right? It should be why not the other way around? <laughs> or, you know, I was a patriot, but now I'm, now I'm feeding stuff to the Russians because I've seen the light. It's the same thing, right? It, it, it's like crater. Uh, I think the religious word is apostasy. So, but anyhow, so we're going to canon is this book, list of books that are authoritative. So... Uh, you know, the, the first misconception that we saw is that the canon referred to a fixed and final 4th century list. And, and I showed, we, uh, you know, I talked about how Athanasius' feastal letter, you know, sort of gave a formal list of all the books we accept. Uh, I don't know if you've read any of Athanasius. I, I really hadn't read much until we, t uh, Lori and I got this uh, um, Advent liturgy book was recommended by Alistair Begg. And the, the man who wrote it, it's every day you've got all these readings. And a lot of them come from Athanasius. You know, it's like the Athanasian Creed, if you don't believe this, you're going to hell. <laughs> you know, it's it really strong, but he has these creedal statements. Uh, so Athanasius was very important. So anyhow, so, but we, we saw that from Athanasius. Uh, and he had the first statement, but he also had other things where he, he referred to lists of books. Um, and then, you know, I went over a, a church father named Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. He was from Alexandria, was educated in the school there, and he went on to Caesarea later in his life. He actually died of the mistreatment of being in prison for two years under Diocletian. He was just tortured for two years, and he didn't live much longer after he got out. But he, he was one of the, the, the most genius people in church history, like in Augustine. Um, so, and he, he provides a number of uh, evidences of, uh, you know, of, of a canon that they, they accepted. But they weren't using the word. Uh, but they had it. They just knew it, right? Okay. And, you know, he flourished, well, he lived in 185 to 253, approximately. Um, 
so we had that at about this fourth century. That's a garbage theory. And then, uh, then another theory was there's no reason for a canon in the first century. But that ignores the fact that the Jews had a canon and they had scriptures. Uh, and the old covenant, we have the new covenant. Christians had a covenant. They had scriptures. So uh, why not the analogy? Did you have a question? No. no. Oh, okay. No. All right. Uh, so Paul talked about being ministers of the, the new covenant. The next one theory I call the clueless theory is that the new authors didn't think they were writing scripture. And we went over a number of scriptures. You know, uh, you know, First Thessalonians two thirteen. Just to remind you of that, uh, and and First Thessalonians was written somewhere between forty nine and fifty one. So that's we're talking twenty years about after the crucifixion. You know, it wasn't a lot of time. You know, Paul was converted. Uh, two, three years later, after the crucifixion, it, there's no real chronology, but it was pretty early. You know, the church really exploded, Peter, Stephen, you know, the seven, and all of that. So, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, so it's 20 years later. So, you know, Paul's about 15 years into the business, right? Give or take, a little more. First uh, Thessalonians 2.13. And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So he makes some bold statements. He makes a lot of bold statements. But that's in his, what might be the earliest epistle that he wrote. Okay. Um, you know, he makes another statement in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like a creed. So, and he's repeating something that he heard from someone else. So 15.1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you. He passed it along as of first importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Kephas and then to the Twelve, and then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So, uh, you know, he, he had received these things, and He's just passing them along. But he, as time developed, he passed along a lot more than just what he'd received from visiting with the apostles in Jerusalem. When I'd mentioned to you, I had misspoken that the Lord appeared to Paul on the ship. The Lord appeared to Paul when he was in Praetorian Guard prison after the Jews tried to kill him when he was in Jerusalem. He said the Lord, the Lord appeared to him and told him, you're going to Rome. But an angel appeared to him on the boat. So, but it's distinguished in the word. Lord, the angel. These guys knew things. So they were different. Luke, you know, that was important. He passed along the apostolic traditions. Luke was 
one of these people we consider an apostolic person, not necessarily an apostle. And, and Luke speaks of this. Uh, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that had been accomplished among us, just as those were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, uh, have delivered to us. So then he says, it seemed good for me to write this down. But so he got these from people who were eyewitnesses and ministers. We talk, looked at Acts 1. Yeah, someone asked about the, the, what are the requirements for an apostle. You know, Peter got up. They said he has to be a, from, a witness from the baptism of John up through the resurrection to be a witness to Jesus. And a witness is a testifier, one who testifies. Later on, it was used of one who dies for the faith, but the witnesses they're talking about are people who testify, like a judicial deponent, uh, someone who can swear to the truth. You know, and John talks about that in Revelation. I, you know, I testify that I saw these things, I heard these things. He's swearing about it. All right, so we looked at some other things. Uh, oh, well, number four, the, the Big Bang Theory, the New Testament books weren't regarded as scripture uh, until about 200 A.D., let alone any discussion of canon. That's a Big Bang. And that was just because of Irenaeus who wrote about the four Gospels, how there had to be four Gospels, there's four directions and four winds, and he goes on and on about that. But he wasn't really the first person to, to talk in those terms. Um, we went saw about Clement of Alexandria, uh, who talks about the four Gospels and the 13 Pauline epistles. And we go, went back to the apostolic fathers of the early second century that testified to the scriptures. So um, there, there, there was really very little debate in the church on what was scripture right from the beginning. Oh, and then the number five misconception, the apocryphal books were as popular as the canonical books. I call that the fantasy theory. And that came out of best student in the class. Uh, that this fantasy theory, uh, no, that, that's the next, that, that's the idiot theory, I think. Uh, so that the apocryphal books were as popular as the canonical books, but there's really no evidence for that, but people say it. And, you know, I said that uh, from the first, second, and third centuries, uh, there's 60 New Testament manuscripts, 18 from John, and during that time there's 17 apocryphal manuscripts, but the most popular, the Gospel of Thomas, only had three copies, and Thomas never made it into a canon list. Never discussed it. Uh, so, oh, and number six, the idiot theory. Christians couldn't tell heresy from orthodoxy until the fourth century. And that's where uh, Ehrman got off, because he read that book by Bauer, and he thought, oh, I've seen the light. Uh, so that's not true. But you know, it makes for a good story, like the Da Vinci Code and all that. Don't get your uh, church history from... That guy. Uh, then, you know, the, uh, another misconception that Christianity was an oral religion. And maybe, you know, as you talk to people, these things are in people's minds. So be ready to answer, give an answer to every man that asketh you uh, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 
King James. So uh, it was a, an oral religion. Well, you know, they say, well, they were all Ill illiterate. They weren't all illiterate, but could have been most people were illiterate. Uh, and they, they were averse to writing. Uh, and then that's a misapplication of pa what Papias wrote. Yeah, one of the things I like is, I think the C.S. Lewis part yeah. said called it chronological snobbery. Oh. That, that, that we obviously hear much more great than that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's that whole pride thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the smartest guy in the class. Or the room. Okay. But all Papias was writing is that he'd rather hear oral testimony about the early church than to read it what someone else wrote. But he, was, he wrote five books. Oh, and I wanted to show you. you know, uh, I had mentioned to you Eusebius of Caesarea. All we know about Papias, he wrote five books. Papias flourished like 120, 130, somewhere around there, but he lived earlier. Uh, I just ran across this, actually, as I was hunting for that King James Version of the Bible. But at some point in the recent past, I went through Eusebius, and all these are little places where he talks about the text of the New Testament. So I've got all the references marked, and, and there was the one on Papias. And, and basically, Eusebius was a cut-and-paste guy, which is great, because we get these documents that have not survived, like Papias. And if you read it, he writes, yeah, so, so he, he says, of Papias, books five in number of his exegesis of the Lord's sayings are in circulation. We don't have any of them. We don't even have a piece of them outside of the citations in Eusebius's history. Irenaeus mentioned these as being his only writings, saying just so. And then he cites... Uh, Papias, the hero of John and companion of Polycarp, who was another apostolic father, an ancient man, testifies to these things, writing in the fourth in, of his books. And he has composed five books. So that, there's what he says from Irenaeus, that he wrote five books. So writes Irenaeus about this. Papias, however, in the introduction of his works, does not indicate that he was an eyewitness or hearer of the holy apostles at all, but teaches that he received the matters of the faith from those who had been familiar with them. He says in these words, and this is where I cited some of that, I will, and this is a papius extract, I will not hesitate to arrange for you, along with the interpretations, whatever I learned well from the elders, and remember well, for I am certain about their truth. For I did not, like the rabble, welcome those who gave many speeches, nor those who recounted the commandments of others, but those who recounted what had been deposited by the Lord in faith and came from truth itself. But if someone came who had followed the elders, I made inquiry about the words of the elders, what Andrew and Peter said. or what Philip, or what Thomas, or James, or John, or Matthias, or any of the other of the Lord's disciples. I mean, he's talking to these people that do these guys. You know, Papias is early first century, but he's talked to these guys. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. 
or, or any of the other Lord's disciples, or what Aristion and the presbyter John, disciples of the Lord, said. For I did not consider what came, and this is where they get the thing they didn't write. For I did not consider what came from books to be as of much value as what came from a living and abiding source. So anyhow, you know, there's all this stuff that he wrote so early, but we don't have it other than what uh, Eusebius saved for us. But anyhow, that was uh, the dummies back then theory was not the case. Um, oh, another misconception, the Gospels weren't written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I call that the theory of we know more almost 2,000 years later than they did about their own current events theory. So, uh, and you know, I'd mentioned, and if you, you want to pursue it, you know, Baucom's book on Jesus and the eyewitnesses, he gives uh, just massive amounts of information that shows that they're the product of eyewitnesses. They are anonymous books, but he also shows, like with Marx, the Papias tells us that Mark was with Peter and and Peter told all his stories, you know, and he's witnessing, you know, we were, oh, I was with Jesus, and you know, I was on the boat, and the storm, and all this. Uh, or on the mountain, and we saw him transfigured. So Peter's telling these stories, and Mark's writing them down. All right? But Balcom can even, you know, scholars can say, well, we can see that he's writing down what Peter said, because Peter told it in the first person, and he sort of transformed it, but not always perfectly, into a third-person history. I mean, you know, these guys are smart. But Balcom also did another thing about eyewitness testimony. He compared the use of personal names in the Gospels with a lexicon of personal names recorded in Palestine. Yeah, written, it looks like a Jewish guy, the name of the author. But what he found is the distribution of the names, the most common, Simon, is the most common man's name, and he, just the distribution of the names, you know, in rank order and relative proportions, it's almost the same as what was in the lexicon of Jewish names. And he says, you know, they couldn't have made this stuff up because they didn't even know. <laughs> You know, the details like that, just, this, but it shows with a guy like Baucom, they, they spend a lot of time doing this research. But that, that was something very important there. So, uh, I didn't mention that last week, and I came across that this week. So, so what standard are we to use? Uh, and now we're sort of getting into this week. Uh, there's... One way is the proclamations of the church, and that's, we'll call it the Roman Catholic approach. Could be the Orthodox. And then there's a the historical evidence approach. And, and a lot of that, what we, I've shown you, that's a historical evidence approach. Is what does the evidence of the history say? And that's what governs what's supposed to be in the canon. Or there's the what I like approach, you know, I read it and it works for me kind of thing. And then there's a self-authenticating model of the reformers and the early church fathers. The first three have problems um, because they put something above the scriptures to determine the scriptures. That's the problem. So 
what we get with the scriptures is we need something of highest authority to define what they are, and that is what they are. It's kind of like when God swears by himself. He didn't swear by anything else. We swear by, you know, government or the Bible, or I swear by God, you know, like Jezebel says, more over to you. If, uh, you won't be dead tomorrow. You know, a lot of times they would swear by Yahweh in the Old Testament. Well, God can only swear by himself. And I think Hebrews mentions that and other places in the New Testament, uh, as far as the covenant goes. He made the covenant. All right, so what we need is the highest authority. All right, and so the self-authenticating model. So now that's, oh, let's see, let's get there. faster way to do this. Yeah, but this this broken down in this format here. Uh, so, oh, part two. Self-authenticating model of the canon. Here we are. Okay, so what standard to use? Just talked about that. All right, self-authenticating. This is the reformers. All right, so here we are. So, the canon, because it's God's word, is the only source of guidance regarding how the authority of the word is to be established. All right. So because the canon is the highest possible authority, it must set the terms for its own validation. This circularity is inevitable when one is dealing with ultimate authorities like canon. For an ultimate authority to be ultimate, it has to set the standard for its own authentication. All right. <coughs> Scripture teaches there are three attributes of canonicity, divine qualities, uh, that is the canonical books bear the marks of divinity. Apostolic origins, the canonical books are the work of the redemptive historical activity of the apostles and corporate reception. The canonical books are recognized by the church as a whole. So now we'll go to the divine qualities. If the canonical books are the work of the Holy Spirit, then they should bear evidence of that, just like the natural world bears evidence to God's activity, like Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth its handiwork, and on and on it goes there in Psalm 19. Romans 1, 20, you know, that's the one, uh, I don't know where my Bible is. Yeah. So, Therefore, that what is known about God is clearly seen to them by the words of these native rough approximations. Yeah. In other yeah. words, the evidence of creation is just like Psalm 19 gives evidence to the yeah. power of God. Right. The things that are seen come from the things that aren't seen. So we've got that. So that's, that's nature. So if nature has that sort of divine quality to it, we should expect at least as much from the scriptures themselves. Ah, and then, you know, the WCF, Westminster Confession of Faith, 1.5. Scripture, quote, doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. 
So that's from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Characteristics are the beauty and the excellency of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Oh, origin. We're back to origin uh, from his book on first principles. He writes, if anyone ponders over the prophetic sayings, it is certainly that in the very act of reading and diligently studying them, his mind and feelings will be touched by a divine breath, and he will recognize the words he is reading are not the utterance of man, but the language of God. So, and then we have the power or efficacy of the word. Word gives wisdom. It gives enlightenment. So these are all you know, Psalm 119. Every, ver every verse in Psalm 119 has something to say about the word. Or, uh, so it's a good thing to read. You could have all the verses there. Enlightenment, you know, joy, understanding, peace, conviction of... Oh, and then conviction of sin we get in Hebrews 4. Where's my... Oh, here it is. Hebrews 4, 12. That's a typo. Whatever. Say four twelve. Yeah. Oh, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and expose the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. So, uh, the Word of God is living and powerful. There's no other um, word like that. All right. So if the divine qualities are there, why doesn't everyone see them? I mean, after all, it's divine, right? That's Bart Ehrman's kind of part. But sin darkens the mind. All right, so let's look at 1 Corinthians. You can't look at everything, but 2. And we'll actually start in 10 and go to 15. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 to 15. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Verse 11, 1 Corinthians 2. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The, nat and the explanation is the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, and on it goes. But... Uh, so you've got the spiritual person, and that's an adjective form of the word for spirit. 
But the natural man, actually, in the, in the Greek, it's psuchikos. It's a, from soul, psuche. So it's really the soulish person. And I was finally vindicated by J. Gresham Macon when I was reading him, and he translated it that way, and I thought, all right. <laughs> so, but it's the one who's got a soul, but not, no, not a spirit, has no spirit. So, uh, anyhow, that's, uh, but the, the natural man can't receive it. So, sin darkens the minds, the reform, oh, Reformers wrote that a person must have the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he was talking about, that. You got the Spirit. So then you might say, well, why isn't this just a form of subjectivism? I got the Holy Spirit, and I read this, and I know what's Scripture. You know, a form of existentialism. Well, the, a subjective or existential canon is founded in an experience of the Scripture, Whereas the reformers grounded the authority of the canon on the objective qualities it contains. So it wasn't just how they felt about it, but it was the characteristics that we just looked at, right? The divine characteristics, beauty, excellency, efficacy. So, um, and the, the, the spirit is the means to recognize the objective qualities. Just like we got eyes and instruments to understand the physical universe okay it's the same way the spirit is the means and you know another thing that Macon very impressed me on in his book on what is faith Hebrews 11 3 He says, he writes, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. And Macon made the point that impressed on me is that faith is a way to learn things. It's valid to have faith to learn stuff. You don't have to be, a, you know, the, the scientific approach is an approach, but it's not the only way to learn things. And I thought, wow, that is, you know, but anyway, he brought me that. I mean, Hebrew says it, but it was Macon's comment on that that impressed on my mind. That by faith we know. We know. It's not like, we know, right? You know what no means. So, all right. Man, did you need a little help? Yeah. All right. Shay will give you a hand. Okay. I'm the girl. Yeah, I'll come, I'll come out with you. I can't go. Okay. Thank right. you. Sure. I might scoot over. Tab. Yeah, I'll get over. Would you move that little pedestal there? Yeah. All right. Thanks for staying, Amanda. All right, see you later. All right, so the spirit is a means to recognize the objective qualities of the canon's authority, but it's not the ground for the canon's authority. The objective qualities and the testimony of the spirit work together. Hebrews 11:3. So, and then we go to the apostolic origins. 
And the canonical books are not only marked by their divine qualities, but also by their apostolic origins, as discussed earlier. I'll just look at a couple things here. How much time do we have? When does this end? Quarter till. Okay. Uh, uh, look up. You can look up Second Thessalonians two fifteen on your own. Then, all right. Uh, we've already been over it once. So Christ gave the apostles special authority to speak for Him, and their books bear testimony to the same authority as their as their oral teaching. Some books, like Luke's Gospel, transmit apostolic teaching. And as I, we talked about Papias and Mark. And actually, another uh, thing about Mark is the chronology isn't as good as in other ones. Because Mark didn't really know the order. He just had all these stories and a general idea of order. Uh, so they, they say the best ones for chronology are the two I went, Matthew and John, tend to get the, the chronologies a little more straight. Okay. So some critical scholars contend that many New Testament books are forgeries and not written by the apostles. Um, they're critical, they're subjective, and they rely on a myriad of methodologies, just like Bart Ehrman. And, you know, I, I recommend Balcom to you if you want to uh, follow that. He just did a wonderful job. So the corporate reception of the scriptures or the canonical books flows from the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, because everybody in the church, the, the, what is that? Is that? That's the invisible church, right? The, the invisible church, they all have the Spirit, right? So there's a lot of people in the invisible church, talking and meeting and all that. So if the testimony of the Holy Spirit is efficacious in convincing individuals, we should expect it to be more so with the church as a whole. You know, individuals are individuals, but you kind of pool them all together and you get that average consensus. And in this case, that ought to be the truth. <laughs> so uh, the scriptures are the possession of God's covenant people. And that's referring to how the, the Jews had the scriptures. The history of the church abundantly shows that a corporate reception, of the, uh, abundantly shows a corporate reception of the New Testament. I we'd read earlier about first Peter 3.16, where Peter testifies to uh, Paul's epistles, all his epistles. And they're hard to understand, by the way. <laughs> Which some people would say that that's, an, that's an evidence of the genuineness, because if someone was forging 2 Peter, he wouldn't talk about it not being easy to, hard, easy to understand, right? So, uh, other places, Luke uh, 1 Timothy 5.18 appears to cite Luke 10.7 and Deuteronomy 25.4. He cites them together and cites them as Scripture. So we, we have these hints even within the, the New Testament itself. Paul traveled with uh, or Luke and Timothy, but, you know, Luke would have been with, Paul wrote to Timothy. Paul requested that his letters be read publicly. And, and we have a lot of scriptures here that they ought to be read publicly. Revelation 1.13 talks about, you know, blessed the one that reads and the, the hearer. 
So that's a parallel to the Jews reading in the synagogue, and there are a lot of examples there. Uh, so Paul was a good Jew and smart. He wouldn't have people substitute non-Scripture for Scripture. Justin Martyr mentions that the Gospels were read along with the Old Testament in the early church. Ignatius refers to Paul's letters. Paul, who is sanctified, who gained a good report, who is right blessed in whose footsteps may I be found when I shall attain to God, who in every epistle makes mention of you in Christ Jesus. And Ignatius wrote that on his way to execution in Rome. So in whose footsteps may I be found. So then I mentioned the Muratorian fragment. I was almost going to make a copy of it, but decided not to. Maybe next week. So that's very early. All right, so conclusion. The canonical books have three attributes, divine qualities, apostolic origins, and corporate reception. And the divine qualities are objective, seen objectively through the work of the Holy Spirit. The evidence that many are forgeries is inconclusive at best, that these so-called, that the New Testament's forgeries and is based on subjective methodologies. The three attributes of canon, canonicity provide a threefold confirmation that the 27 books of the New Testament are precisely the ones God intended us to have. So next week we'll do the transmission of the text. Uh, Tim gave me an extra week. So that'll be more show and tell. Yeah, I got books, pictures. So we'll do the transmission of the New Testament text. Any questions? They can wait out there. Questions, comments? All right, well, thank you, and uh, there's extra handouts, and see you next week.